Well, thank you very much, David, for choosing that song. I will be singing it for three days nonstop, which is slightly better than singing Green Acres three days nonstop. Much better, actually. And thank you, everyone, who helped to come up and sign this morning. Well, I want to begin this morning by making a statement with which almost no one in our land would disagree. God is love. Now, there are plenty who would have something to say about the identity of God or the nature of love. But most everyone is going to agree with this statement. God is love. At the same time, a lot of people would reverse it and say, love is God. Which, if that is true, would make God a principle of the universe rather than a sovereign, living God who is the source of all love. It works this way, God is love, but it doesn't work the other way. Some people think that every act of love here on earth touches the heart of God as if he's in heaven and when anybody does anything that's really good, he's like, oh, that's so sweet, that's so cute, that's so kind. Probably the biggest point of confusion about God's love is that it's some sort of a a sappy love that we have earned in some way. And God looked down from heaven and he said, My people are trying so hard. I should help them. What can I do? Oh, I know. I will send my son who will show them how to live. That's sort of the idea that people have about the love of God in sending his son. But God's love is so much richer and fuller and meaningful and life-changing than a random collection of good cheer and thoughts of of random happiness at this time of year. There are multiple places in the Bible to which we could go if we're going to talk about God's love, but I don't think we could do better than 1 John chapter 4. If 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter of the Bible, or the yeah, the love chapter of the Bible, then 1 John would have to be the love book of the Bible. In fact... We will find in 1 John 4 the secret to love, although it's really not that big of a secret. It's a secret to many, but to those who know Christ, it's not. The Apostle John, in his writings, used the simplest vocabulary and the simplest grammar in all of the New Testament. And because of his style, when you read First John, when we read in just a few minutes, God is love. He that loveth knows God. It, it's going gonna, it's gonna to sound very simple. And you may be tempted to think that he is giving us simple theology. You could not possibly be more mistaken with that notion, though, that just because John writes simply that he's giving us simple theology. The teaching found in First John about God, about his love for us, and about... Our privilege and responsibility to love both those within the body and those outside the body is breathtakingly profound. Even if you fail to see it as such, the first reading or the second or the tenth or even the one hundredth reading, we will never, ever explore the depths 
of God's truth in Scripture. And that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? No matter how much we see today, there's more to be seen tomorrow and next year and 30 years from now. Our text today is 1 John 4, 7 through 21. And I thought I had changed that on that screen. I'm sorry I didn't. We're going to read through the text. Then I'm going to share several principles about love, some of which are derived as much from what is not said as from what is said. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, so would you please stand for the reading of God's Word. And Stephanie, that scares me. I think I may have sent the wrong thing. If we do, we just have to knock it out at some point, all right? 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world. So that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. But that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved. If God so loved us. We also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. (coughs) Because as he is... So also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen... Cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge that your word is truth. We acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world sent out of the heart of your love for us who had rebelled and sinned against you. We acknowledge that you have called us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and indeed to have the same love for the world that Jesus had. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts to far greater love and affection than they already are find at this moment. 
give us love. The one who is the source of all love. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Well, I initially had six principles to share from this text, but I thought seven would be better. Don't worry. It's not... It's not that one is forced. I mean, there's no telling how many principles. We could just go endlessly from this text. Um, we'll be moving at a pretty decent pace through most of this. We'll stop here and there. But think of this perhaps as an outline for Bible study. If you don't want to write these down, I'm going to put them on the city later. And if this is the wrong copy, I'll have the right copy on there. Um, <clears throat> but... Let's jump in. The first principle we're going to think about is that we cannot know genuine love apart from God. That's a pretty bold statement when you think about it. I mean, there are a lot of things that people do who don't know God that are very loving. People do things that are sacrificial, in fact. We are, after all, made in the image of God. You know, we've, we've almost, in spite of what I was saying a while ago about people thinking of God's love as a sappy kind of a love, in, in, in a sense, we've given up our illusions of this rudderless, sentimental love in our world these days. And we seek only to argue our position and, and to try to convince people on the other side to come over to our side. Because our side is the right side, wouldn't you agree? You can agree with that no matter which side you're on. In reality, there are only two sides. Those who are beneficiaries, recipients of God's love, and those who are not. 1 John 4, 8 tells us that the one who does not love God does not know God because God is love. In fact, you get the sense from this text that, that, that John is clearly saying, It is impossible to love without knowing God. Why? Because God is love. Again, though, it's not this weak, weaking at sin, anything goes kind of love that so many desperately hang on to in our day in spite of evidence to the contrary. God's love is rooted in his righteousness, which is why the second principle in our list has to be true. Love in the purest sense of the word is always at God's initiative. Twice we are told in this text, it is not we who had loved God, but that he loved us and that he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. More about that word in just a moment. One of our biggest problems in yielding to God's love is that we want to be the initiators of anything good. And if we say that it's God who first loved, then that sort of relegates us to a secondary kind of lover of anything and anyone else. And if we want to be the initiators of anything good, when you think about it, it means we just want to be God. I mean, just think of the way that Christmas has been perverted. It's a time when we want to feel good about ourselves by, by helping other people. And, and, and it's a proper motivation to reach out to those who are in need. Most 
rescue missions and others will take your help now, but they would also like for you to be involved all year long. But this time of the year in particular, in particular, we find ourselves taking meals to people and, and you know, helping out here and giving a little extra there. And we want to feel good about ourselves. So we give gifts to others as well as helping out. And in reality, we ought to shudder at the high cost of our sin. There's plenty about which to rejoice at Christmas. But there should also be an awareness that God came to earth in great humility and with the cross in mind. In fact, the third principle from our text is that God's love is seen more fully in the crucifixion event. And when I say that, I mean I'm talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection than it is in Jesus' birth. Now that doesn't mean that the, that the praise of the angels and the worship of the shepherds was misplaced, but rather that Jesus was born to die. You may recall from Luke 2 when Jesus was presented at the temple some 40 days after he had been born that the Simeon, not, not necessarily a prophet, just, just, a, just an old man, Simeon came and he took Jesus in his arms and he prophesied that Jesus would bring salvation to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And he also prophesied that he would be the cause of the rising and falling of many in Israel. And he looked at Mary and he said, and it will be as if a sword had pierced your heart. In fact, if there's a time in the New Testament outside of the Gospels where the incarnation is mentioned apart from the crucifixion or resurrection, I don't recall it. And in Galatians 4 where it tells us that at the proper time, at the appointed time, when the time was exactly right, Jesus came forth and his death is not right there, but the whole book is about the fact that Jesus became a curse and was hung on a tree because we were not good enough to get to God. Once we begin to understand the true nature of sin, we'll begin to understand the depths of God's love for us. Let me ask you this. When do you feel... God's love the most deeply when you've done something really good or when you've done something really bad and you know that God loves you anyway. It's when you've messed up big time, isn't it? I mean, you don't say it when you're doing really well, but the temptation is to think, well, God's lucky to have me on his team, you know. I think I'll negotiate a new contract. <laughs> I'd hold off on those negotiations. Our role in the universe, according to 1 John 10, was to sin. And we fulfilled that. I mean, we played that role very well, haven't we? God's love prompted him to act in order to remove our sin. Love never remains in the abstract. Love is never just that idea. See, that's the problem. Look at almost everything that you hear on the radio and you see in the... In, Love is an idea. No, love never remains in the abstract. It acts. 
It's demonstrated by actions. Verse 10 tells us that God sent Jesus to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, propitiation is not one of those words you use every day. But it is one of the most important words in Scripture and therefore one of the most important words in the world. It speaks of God's covering of our sin and indeed the removal of the sin that set us at odds with God because of his righteous wrath towards sin. Boy, you could, if, if this is your first time uh, here today, you could be saying, wow, that's kind of a bummer of a Christmas message. You know, this is a downer. And I it really, you, we don't like to think of God being wrathful. And maybe we're making too big, big a deal out of it since the Old Testament only talks about God's wrath five times. No, wait a minute, that's 585 times that wrath is mentioned in the Old Testament. Paul said in Romans 1.18 that God's wrath is continually being poured out on mankind because of sin. And that wrath is seen in everything from you losing your car keys to the worst diagnosis possible from the doctor. Even toward those who love, God's wrath is continually being revealed because of sin in the world. One day that's going to all be done for those who know Jesus. So don't read too much into what I just said. But the wrath of God reveals itself over and over day in when you're bumping into things in the night, in the dark. That's all because of sin. God's ultimate wrath against sin is going to be poured out on the final day of judgment. Jesus himself spoke about God's wrath abiding on the lost in John 3.36. Jesus was recorded 22 times talking about judgment and about hell in particular. Although some of those were overlapped. They're, they're the same instance, same occasion spoken of by the different gospel writers. I'm sure that one of the reasons that we have difficulty thinking about a loving God and a God of wrath as being one and the same is because so often the wrath of man is revealed in this uncontrollable and irrational rage. It's always alarming, isn't it, when somebody is pretty peaceful and everything's just cool and then all of a sudden, Rah! it's like, where did that come from? And so that's kind of how we think about the wrath of God. You know, that he's in heaven just waiting and then one day he just loses it. Because we've messed up. But remember, God is perfect and therefore his wrath against sin is not only perfect as well, it's unavoidable. What if I were to say to you, hey, look, I can get you a great deal on a luxury car or a sports car, whichever is your preference. It's illegal technically, but nobody has to know about it. It's, it's, it's a sure thing. You would be saying, how much exactly? No, hopefully you'd be saying, I wouldn't do that. Who do you think I am? But we are so inconsistent with our righteousness. You're not going to do that, but you will take a couple of extra packs of Splenda, you know, from the restaurant, you know, and just stick them in there. Look, we've all got something, Right? Which makes it okay, right? For me, it's those sticks at Starbucks, you know, that I use for toothpicks. So, <laughs> confession is good for the soul, I suppose. 
<laughs> Might be bad for the job, though. <laughs> but that's our problem, isn't it? See, and we categorize it. Some things are okay, some things are not okay. See, we're inconsistent in our righteousness, but God is not inconsistent with his wrath. God is perfect, which is why we have so much trouble getting to him. In fact, we don't have an adequate word to describe him. Holy is the best that we can do, and it just simply means other. God is other than. So it is impossible for the perfect and holy God not to pour out his wrath on sin in the earth. And that means on sinners. But Jesus absorbed God's wrath on our behalf. He drank the full cup of God's wrath on the cross. And that's what he was begging to avoid at Gethsemane. God's wrath toward your sin, my sin. Several places in the Old Testament speak of the cup of God's wrath being poured out on people in judgment. And though Jesus wanted to be delivered from drinking that cup, there was no other way. And when he drank it, he drank it to the last dregs. And his blood became a propitiation for our sins or a covering or... Uh, and this word is slightly different here than it is in Romans 3. Uh, here it's helosmos. There it's hilasterion. And there's a big controversy about hilasterion. I know you all know that, so we won't go into it today. But it's not that, that Jesus just covered our sin. Not that he just removed our sin as far as from the east to the west, but that in his blood, God's wrath was totally exhausted on Jesus. And when you stand behind him, you're protected from God's wrath. But it's not like, oh boy, got to find out a way to, to, to get away from this mean God. No, this whole passage is about why Jesus died as he did. It was because of the Father's Love. And accepting Jesus' death on cross as a substitute for my eternal punishment in hell. God remains just and consistent with his character. But Romans 3 tells us he also becomes the justifier of all who believe in Jesus. And it is so beautiful and deep in the truth. Of all that is being accomplished on the cross. People think, well, okay, Jesus died, but you know, he was suffering for a period of about nine, ten, twelve hours, six hours on the cross, and then he rose again. Look, that six hours on the cross was the equivalent of an eternity in hell. Not just for me, but for you and you and you. For at the very least, All who believe. Can you imagine that? Why did Jesus do it? Well, first of all, his birth was significant because it's essential. He had to be 100% man, 100% God. God, as he always has been from eternity past, which means there's never been a time when Jesus did not exist. 
He's always existed as three in one, which is the focus of our next principle. God's Trinitarian love is much fuller than we typically enjoy. By this, verse 13, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. You notice the Trinity in that text. Because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. The father's plan. The son's obedience or compassion. The spirit's comfort. The father's requirement for justice. The son's sacrifice. The spirit's regeneration. There is danger in talking like that because if you divide it up too much, then you get into uh, heresies in one way. And if you don't divide up the responsibilities of the three, you get into heresies in other ways. But you, you cannot separate the three persons from the essence, but it is clear in Scripture. The, Bible, the Bible teaches us that there are distinct roles, especially in salvation with regard to salvation. Of the three members of the spirit. Even so God is one in essence. The love that exists within the trinity. The love the father has for the the son and the spirit. The love the son has for the father and the spirit. And the love the spirit has for the father and the son. Is the basis for love on this earth. It's It's the starting point for God's love for us. And in turn our love for him. And for others, the love that exists within the Trinity. When you consider the Father's plan includes his judgment of our sin being executed on his son. Well, that's a lot to take in, isn't it? Think about the person who has done the very worst thing imaginable to you. Let's think about that because we tend to judge others by their worst faults and we judge ourselves by our best intentions. But look, there's no difference in that and our sin before God. There's no difference in our sin and the sin of those who are murdering children in the Middle East. Now, clearly we reflect God far more than people who do things like that. But sin is sin and it separates us from God. And God sending his son to die for us is incredible love. By no means do I intend to diminish in any way Jesus' love for us and go into the cross when I say what I'm about to say. But the New Testament speaks more frequently of God's love for us in sending his son than it does in Jesus' love for us and going to the cross. Like I say, it doesn't diminish one or the other. But we think about Jesus' great love for us. It's the Father's plan. Can you imagine sending your only child to die for people who have committed these horrifically heinous, horrible sins against you? Every sin is is an offense against God. And so think about sending your son to die for that rabble. We wouldn't know any of this 
without the Spirit. The Spirit who is the author of Scripture. The Spirit who brings Scripture to life. The Holy Spirit who regenerates us and baptizes us into the body of Christ. It's worth taking time to consider Gregory of Nazianzus' beautiful reflection on the Trinity. Every time I I read Gregory of Nazianzus, I think about Burt Wallace. He said, when I was a kid, I loved that. Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nazianzus. So I can just see Burt anytime I I say that name. Gregory was one of the Cappadocians, as you well know, uh, who had much to do with articulating the doctrine of the Trinity at the Council of Constantinople in A.D. 381, which in turn means so much to our understanding of God. You've seen this before if you've been here long enough, maybe a couple of times, but oh my, we could see it every year. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me. You know, this is perfect quote for the Trinity because you know, it's just so hard to comprehend. I cannot grasp the greatness of the one so as to attribute, attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch. And cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. That is both the challenge and the blessing of the Trinity. And God's love within the Trinity and for us. Another principle from our text God's love, which is never abstract, is only meaningful to us. In light of our response. You may be touched by the loving act of someone. Love that comes from God. But if you don't respond to God. It is very temporary. We are right in praising God for who he is. But we cannot know him. Unless he reveals himself to us. And the tangible expression. Of his love to us is Jesus. Born. Crucified. Buried. And risen. If God is love. And and if God abides in the one who confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, then the secret to love is Jesus. Once again, not in the way it is typically presented or remembered at this time of the year. I was listening this morning to uh, Josh Groban's Christmas album, and he was talking about this beautiful song, but he's singing about how it's all, it's up to me. You know, we all have to find the truth in our own way. I'm thinking, no, there's, there's only one truth. And if you're, if you're searching for something that will make sense to you, then you've, you're missing the truth of God. That's arrogant. Well, yes, it is if you look at it in a particular way, but it's what Scripture says. We have to believe it or reject it. It's not kind of like, well, yeah, there's a little bit here, a little bit there. I, it's, it's helpful. All or nothing. Increasingly, 
Jesus is relegated to an idea that we are to love one another unconditionally. Which means we are to accept all people as they are. And we're certainly not to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Yet, our text teaches us in no uncertain terms that God does not abide in those who do not believe and confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Why would a confession of God's love in Jesus make other people so angry? Well, we want to be God. We certainly don't want others telling us what's right. Well, check that. I don't want you telling me what's right and wrong. I just don't. But I cannot know God's love apart from a response of faith in Jesus. And when we do respond in, in faith to Jesus, we will discover that God's love will positively impact us in meaningful ways. When we soak in God's love, we will have peace with him. The kind of peace that casts out fear. Verse 18 tells us that when we abide in God's love, which we do by confessing Jesus, we don't have anything to worry about on the day of judgment. Are you are you struggling with doubt? Do you think maybe just wonder if I've got it. I wonder if I'm really one of the elect. I wonder if this, I wonder. Let me ask you this. Do you have any hope of heaven apart from Jesus? If the answer to that is no, and you're saying, yes, my only hope, I put all my hope on Jesus, then you have no fear for the day of judgment. God loves you. And takes away that fear. Many of you have had to face your own mortality this year, whether it's your own physical health or whether it's the loss of a loved one, oftentimes in a very sudden way. It's never a bad thing to face your own mortality, even though it's almost always quite uncomfortable. But when you think, I might be sick, I might die, What's really important comes front and center, does it? Becomes front and center. 1 John 3, 1 to 3 tells us that we should always live in light of that day when we will stand before Jesus. And that's going to lead us to purify ourselves, turning us away from the destructive love for the world and for ourselves that John warns us about against in 1 John 2, 15 to 17. The more you read this book, which can seem so simple, the more you see the depth of God's love and patterns about his love begin to emerge, which leads us to the last principle. Biblically speaking, there are levels of priority in love. God, his covenant family, those outside the family. It's just like when you make priorities in your own life, you say, I love my spouse I love God, then I love my spouse, then my children, then those in my church, family, whatever. There's order in God's design. In view of the Trinity, that shouldn't be surprising. Intentional order in God's plan. Even when chaos is all we're able to discern all around us. What's going crazy in your life these last two or three weeks? Or two or three days? What's going crazy out of the blue? 
It may seem chaotic, and you may think there is no way that this is going to turn out as it should. It's going to make sense one day. And know for now that there is order in God's plan. You know, we, we think about love, and most of us, I'm going to guess that most of the people in here just do not have enough time to get accomplished what needs to be accomplished. And you don't know how to prioritize your time. What you what you do with your time is going to say a whole lot about where your affections lie. About what you love. In the same way that there is love, there is order in our relationship with God. He loved us, then we love him. There's also to be priority of focus in the way that we give our love to him and to others. First, we are to love God above all. It has to be the case. Because if, what if your spouse turns away? You can't turn away. You have to stay faithful to God. You have to love him No matter what happens in in your life, what if you go to jail for your faith in Christ? What if the worst thing imaginable happens? Stay faithful. Love Him just like He loved you. You can love Him because He did love you. Then, contrary to what many believe, we are to love the covenant family. Our brothers and sisters in Christ. From that will flow a love for the lost, longing to share with him the blessing of God's love through Jesus and the benefits that are available in the covenant family of God. Many in our day allow their love for those who don't know Christ to marginalize their love for the body. What's more important? Spending time with your brothers and sisters in Christ or going out witnessing to the lost? Well, the spiritual answer would seem to be witness to the lost. But that love is backwards and misplaced. When you read the New Testament, especially those of you, and and let me challenge you right now to to get in some kind of one-year Bible reading plan this year. And as you go through, especially in the New Testament, count up the times that you read about outreach and count up the times that you read about getting along with the brothers and sisters in Christ. You're going to be stunned at what appears to be an imbalance. So does that mean we should neglect outreach? Heavens, no. The mission of the church is to make disciples. And that begins with evangelism. If we love God and we love one another like we ought to, it will be impossible for us to stay quiet. Just remember this. In that order, and that is why our purpose statement, by the way, Exalting the Lord, establishing believers, engaging the world with the good news of Jesus Christ is ordered the way that it is. It's kind of like this. Do we, you know, which one do we focus the most on? Yes. Except that there is order. There's priority. And then we find ourselves accomplishing all three or seeking to accomplish and address all three 
at the same time. Exalt. Give God the love that is due to him above all. Establish believers and give your heart to your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's why, brothers and sisters, please have a good reason before you walk away from this covenant family of God. Make sure there's a gospel reason. Do not be caught up with the spirit of the age that I can go here and there and everything's cool. Whatever. Be committed to this family. And as a family, we've got to care about those who don't know Jesus. We cannot become so inward focused that we don't make room for other people to have a place in this family. We're going to be talking about that a lot in the spring. A place in the family. Aren't you so thankful that God made room for you? Aren't you thankful that your brothers and sisters in this place made room for you? The love of God. Let's pray. Father, um, I doubt there was much said today that was new to a lot in our body today. (laughs) But that stuff never gets old. The news, the love that you have for us that is beyond description because it's beyond comprehension. Well, we're grateful for it. And we're grateful for the amazing plan that you sent your son, Jesus, to this earth. No wonder the angels sang. No wonder the shepherds worshipped. We sing and worship and praise God along with them. This morning we're going to close with singing a uh, Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And I want you to look at the the deep theology in this Christmas carol written by Charles Wesley, this hymn of praise and gratitude, music by... Mendelssohn, Felix Mendelssohn. It's it's a great, great song. If there's something about the theology that is shared in this this great song, I want you to make a mental note and then commit to finding out what second Adam means. What it means uh, that Jesus came to reconcile sinners. Would you stand together as we sing Heart the Hill? For a season we rejoice in our Savior's birth and uh, just uh, from Jesus at his, after his resurrection asked Peter three times Simon, son of John, do you love me? And three times uh, Peter responded in kind and with yes and uh, Jesus' response the uh, three different times were different. Uh, first time, Jesus responded, feed my lambs. And then, uh, oh, goodness, now I've lost it here. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep. Tending my sheep, 
feed my sheep and uh, feed my lambs. Just thinking about uh, God's love and the way Brad said that it's only meaningful in light of our response to Jesus and our love for him. So what is our response? After, and Jesus, after saying this, he said to Peter, follow me. It leads us to our great commission. And I uh, wanted to read that. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this season, great opportunities. We're going to be gathering with family, with friends, unbelievers. The Great Commission stands before us. So go in peace and share the gospel this holiday season. Amen.